Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. You're listening to episode 248, and this is the beginning of a series of discussions with Duncan Sparrow. He's the owner of a consulting firm whose personal mission is to make the world a safer place for people like you and me. Duncan unexpectedly got into programming after not caring for it when he took courses in school. It's fitting that this releases in the month of October because October, if you didn't know, is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So in this episode, we're going to build your awareness of some lesser-known roles in cybersecurity, dispel some myths about the industry as a whole, and give some advice for how you might could break into that industry if you're looking to do that. In this discussion, Duncan will also share the work he's done to create standards and how all of us could play a part and get involved there. And finally, how do we foster innovation? Can you curate it? And what was it like to work at the Idea Factory? Let's catch the full story and get to part one of our discussion with Duncan Sparrow. Duncan Sparrow, thanks for joining us on The Nerd Journey. Hi, John. Hi, Nick. Can you tell us a little bit about what did you do these days? And then maybe we'll back into how you got there. Sure. Well, I'm uh, I'm chief cyber curmudgeon at S. Fractal Consulting. That's basically a boutique consulting company for uh, software and cybersecurity that I founded. It's basically to help me with my mission to make the world a safer place. When After I retired, I wanted to give back to the community. I consult a little bit, and I uh, do an awful lot of pro bono work in, um, in standards, in uh nonprofit work in the in the area of cybersecurity, and I do consult some as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin of the name as Fractal? Well, I really like fractals. One of my taglines is sort of the closer you look, the more you see. And if you know anything about fractals, that's really cool Cool on that. Mandelbrot. And, and Fractal was already taken, so I, I had to put an S in front of it. And my last name is Sparrow, and I'm doing software, and I'm doing security. So S could be any one of those three. It was available, so I took it. And what about that curmudgeon part? Is that just something that happened over time or? Well, I am, I am old, so I, I can be a curmudgeon at times. I like to push back. So, so that's sort of a, a tradition of, of curmudgeons. And the other thing was I had a, another friend who retired around the same time I did. And he started his own, again, single person company and he called himself CEO. I'm like, I'm one person. I can't be the CEO of a one person company. So I needed to make up a name. And so that's what I made up. I love it. That's terrific. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe your technical origins, that origin story? I, I know we're, we're rolling back some years. We're, we're rolling back into well into the previous century, just to, just to be clear here. <laughs> so I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, which when I went there, it had one computer. And, and they upgraded it and had to buy a new one and they had to build a new building to fit it in. So Computers were really big. You programmed them with punch cards. Uh, I did really well in school, stayed for my master's. In the whole five years, I only took one uh, computer course. It was in Fortran, and it was literally my worst grade in, in my entire academic career. Uh, so don't get you know bummed out if you don't do as well in school. But again, you know, computers were just getting started out. I stayed on for my master's, and my master's thesis was working, actually programming a adjunct to a mini computer. So this, this mini computer arithmetic processing unit was about the size of your average kitchen refrigerator. I needed to program an assembly and I programmed it to do FE, FFTs, fast forward transforms. And that's how I learned to program. And I, I really liked that. And, and that got me interested. Went to work at, at Bell Labs, 
great place to work back in the day. This is in the, the Ma Bell days? The Ma Bell days. So, so there was literally a million employees in the Bell system. Bell Telephone Laboratories was the R&D arm of it. It was sort of the premier place to go. And, and the only way you got in was right out of school. Um, and so I got offered a job there and took it because it was, it was great and got involved in, I mean, my, my degrees in electrical engineering. So I got involved in hardware design, um, but I had to actually design what nowadays would be called a specialized processor. Um, and I had to write my own assembly. I had to design it and then write my own assembly language for it and compile it. And there was this new language they just, you know, Bell Labs had just invented that was really cool called uh, C. I literally have a first edition of Kernahan and Ritchie's The C Programming Book. I actually have it signed by Brian Kernahan, who I got to work with later. And it's a first edition, not because I went to some bookstore and bought it years later, because it was the first edition when I got it. It had just come out. So I got involved in C programming, got involved in programming, electronic switching systems, basically the phone network, how the phone network works, and the rest is history. Assembly language, push, pop, all the good things. Even worse. To get the computer started, you had to start by programming it to read the paper tape to then be able to get a screen and a keyboard that you could type at. And you literally put it in, in binary on rocker switches on the front of the computer, ones and zeros. Forget this assembly language stuff. It was literally ones and zeros. Oh, wow. That's really fantastic that you got in on the ground floor of C. I mean, essentially, you worked and were colleagues with the people who invented the language. Right. And you know, you know why he invented it, right? You know why C got invented? Actually, I don't. So Bell Labs had, it was R-A-N-D. Um, later on, I can tell you about the ampersand because I worked in that for a while. But I most of Bell Labs was development and I, I worked in development. But it did have a big research arm. And, and Kernahan and Ritchie and Thompson and those guys all worked in, in the research arm. And they published a lot of papers. They're sort of like academics. They get graded sort of on, on how often they publish. And they do these fancy mathematical equations. Now, I have to remember back in 1978, what I'm talking about, um, word processors didn't exist yet. Okay. We literally wrote in pencil on sheets of paper and gave it to the typing pool and they typed it up. And it was a real pain if you were doing like, you know, fancy equations, because that's just not something you can type on a typewriter. And so they, they were writing papers and books and they wanted to photo off, you know, photo typeset their own papers. Uh, so they invented this thing called TROF for typesetting their papers. There was a sort of simpler version for NROF that the rest of the us used. And then to do that, to sort of program these first computers they had to do all this for is they were trying out different languages and different operating systems. And C was their third try after A and B, and it's the one that took that they liked. Um, and they needed to put it on something. So they designed the Unix operating system to put it on, but it was all to help them write academic papers. And that's from the horse's mouth. I'm not one of the horses, but I've literally spoken with them. You ran with the horses. Yes, I ran after them. If you remember the old cartoons, that was the guy with the shovel going, you know, behind the horses. Was there ever at that point? Was there a a, a LaTeX versus a TROF? Yes. Okay. There might have been, but I mean, there was a little bit on the outside. But in Bell Labs, no, it was TROF. Okay. I think there's there's even still like a GNU version out there that you can use. Yep. That is fascinating. I had never heard that story me neither and i i I mean i thought the joke was going to be like you know b plus plus was already taken no c plus plus came later that was from a different bell edge guy oh yeah you know what's really interesting to me duncan is you come out of the gate and said fortran was your worst class and then you end up in development focused work surrounding this programming language and programming computers in the job you got after not having a great experience with the Fortran part, was it was it harder for you to get excited about the development work you were doing? No, actually, actually, it was the other way around because, well, for my master's thesis stuff, the fact that I actually got to program the computer like with an actual keyboard as opposed to these card thing, you used to have to go to a card puncher and punch the cards in and stuff. So that was part of it. Part of it was I was, you know, one was a class and one was an interesting thing. We were literally programming sound to, to be displayed on a screen, which was really also weird because it was funded by the Navy, which at the time I had like, why is the Navy funding us to do this? And about I don't know, 10 years later, Hunt for Red October comes out and I'm saying, oh, those sonar screams, that's what I designed. I didn't even realize I was doing it. And on your on your serendipitous comment earlier on, hey, I started out doing bad in computers and spent most of my career in it. In a sort of similar note, 
when I did get a bunch of, I got a bunch of job offers when I was coming out of school, every single one of them except Bell Labs required a clearance. And I was like, I don't want a security clearance. So I, I went to work for Bell Labs, of course, and then ended up with half my career in the intelligence and law enforcement community with very, very high level clearances. So again, sort of a just, you don't always go the way you think you're going. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That's fascinating. Maybe I can ask a, a follow-up question on that. I, I think that some people get disheartened about the formal learning process and regard that as kind of the be-all and end-all. And it sounds like you were able to like fairly quickly transcend that. Or, or is that only in you know 2020 hindsight? Or you know, was it an issue at the time? A, a little bit of both. I think it's more at play. Well, it's actually in play both in software development. But I think it's even more at play in cybersecurity, my, my more recent career. Because, I mean, all of a sudden done, software engineering is a new field. Obviously, it's been in my career time. Cybersecurity is an even newer field. It's only been in the latter half of my you know, career time. So we're still working out the kinks in, in the best way to train people and, and what's the best for the job. And because it's so new, and people got to where they got to in different paths, everyone has sort of different views of what the what the right path is. One of the takeaways should be don't get disheartened if on the path you're on, it doesn't look like the right one. There's probably some other ones. Some people, you know, learn by doing. Some people learn, you know, by really getting into the, the background and the, the theory behind it in, in books, the more I'll call it academic side. Both are valid. And again, both fields are are new enough that you might be the person that does it totally differently. And that's perfectly fine. I, in fact, I, I think you could probably list all the different ways you can get into either of those two fields. And there's way more ways than most people realize. Yeah, there's this interesting challenge of the hiring manager who could look at somebody on paper and see, well, they didn't do that great in learning this in school, for example. Yeah. How do I know if the more practical learning is going to be right for them or will completely change the game there? Or vice versa. Particularly in cybersecurity, it's much more, a, I'll call it a practitioner's field. We're so short on people. Most people get their jobs by knowing other people and knowing how, you know, knowing somebody else in the field, which is tough because there's not enough people. So you, there's not enough to go around. And then what everybody wants, of course, is experienced people. They don't want beginners and there isn't as good a path as there could be to for that initial training there is a certain you know schools are are adding it more and more now tends to be again a little bit from again my personal opinion they tend to be a little bit too i'll call it academic oriented and not enough practical oriented yet the sort of learn on your own tends to be maybe too practical oriented there there is a there is a mix in between so things like meetups and and stuff where people get to meet other practitioners and sort of you know learn learn by doing um, you know capture the flag events or if you if you really want to be a pen tester um, things like that so there are certifications there are academic courses and there are hey just go do it and um, all all of them are valid. What are some of those meetup type groups that you would recommend for the listener out there who wants to break into cybersecurity who maybe hasn't been taking advantage of that as a resource since we're talking about it? I guess one recommendation would be, first of all, what do you want to do? Cybersecurity is a very broad field. There's lots of reasons to get into it. Um, could could be financial, could be you really like problem solving, could be altruistic. You know, I'll say most of the stuff I do since I've been retired in, in the consulting stuff, most of what I do is is more from a, no, I do think I actually make the world a safer place by doing that. And I, I feel good about doing that. Of course, because I've had a long, successful career, so is my wife, I'm financially well enough off, I can afford to do that. Not everybody else can. So you, get, you sort of got to juggle, juggle them all. That's sort of one aspect to it. But another aspect to it is there's, do you want to get into the policy of it? Do you want to get into the legal aspects? Do you want to be a salesperson? I mean, there's, I'll have to say probably most of the jobs are, are in sales, which people don't realize. It's a big industry and it's a growing industry. And since it's growing, they need more people who know stuff. So people don't think of those sort of, I'll say, non-traditional. Um, they, they think of the, no, I got to be a hacker. I got to be a pen tester. I will say that is a good thing to be as well. And one of my taglines that, that I'm proud of is think evilly, act ethically. You, you do need both halves of that. Some people just aren't wired for thinking evilly. I, for whatever reason, happen to do it well. <laughs> um, but, but I do have the act ethically half to it too, which, which is also important, particularly if you want a career in the field. Um, you want to go be a criminal hacker, good luck. I worked for years in law enforcement. I'm pretty sure you're eventually going to get caught um, and you're going to end up in jail. So it's not, not a good thing. You really should be a white hat. 
And if you're going to be a white hat and you want to succeed, then then you probably need to do the you know the act ethically hard. But the think evilly part is not natural for most people. Most most people are rule followers, and and you have to you can't ever answer the question with. But no one would do that. You have to say, well, no, someone will do that, and therefore you need to worry about it. So. So you're interested in the legal aspects to it. There's a great group in DC called Legal Hackers, and it's 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 actually interesting for the lawyer side, and it's interesting for the technical side because it's basically where the tech tech side and the lawyer side meet, and they we talk through problems and stuff like that. So that's sort of like I'll say an atypical meetup, but I'm using it as an example because cybersecurity is a a new field. There are a lot of meetups basically run by recruiting firms to try and get more people into the field and to get calibrated on the on the person. They're they're sort of a little bit more of an interview and test than you realize when you go to them. Um, so first of all, realize that. Uh, but go there, meet other people, um, learn learn by doing. I happen to be, be a big fan of there's this organization called B Sides, which has its own sort of funny startup because it started out besides DefCon, but really be- between Black Hat and and DefCon. But there's a lot of them in a lot of cities, and and I like them. I go to a bunch of them in a bunch of different cities, and they all have their own character. Different cities have different sort of characters because they're you know they're run by the groups of people doing it. But all of them, at least all of the ones I've been involved in, are all interested in helping other people learn more about it. So you get to meet people, you work with the people, and again, you learn not just what you want to do, you also learn what you want to not do. Okay. In other words, no, I, you know, this guy's really into that. That's just not what I want to do. So great. You learn something. You don't have to learn, you know, learning to go a different direction is, is important. The podcast is about, you know, careers. If I had to give one, you know, single most important thing that you should learn about your career is it's not going to turn out how you expect. And the world's going to change a lot over the course of your career. I mean, we started out talking about what the world was like, you know, in the late seventies when, when I started. The world's changed really a lot since then. Over your career, it's going to, you know, continue that change. And so, you know, I started out as a hardware engineer, quickly became a software engineer, which again was not even something that existed the few years before that when I was in college. And then later became a cybersecurity engineer, again, something that didn't exist at all for decades of the first few decades of my career. So you have to be prepared to change. You have to be prepared to learn. Um, and if you are, you'll be successful. If you sort of only do one thing, um, you do have to worry about the thing might not continue to exist. That's a great point. It takes time, investment, and effort to learn what you don't want to do. Right. Just as much as it does to do those things in regard to what you do want to do. Yep. And it's not a sunk cost to spend that time investigating. Nope. Like I remember at RSA earlier this year where you and I met, they had an entire track of law, and I I didn't know that that was a track at RSA because it was the first time I went, and I went to some of the sessions. I'm like, this is really fascinating. I don't think I'd want to do it, but right. it was really fascinating to go and sit in some of those. And there's a side, just because, again, I've gotten involved in, I, I started out as a geek, but now I'm a little bit more wonkish, uh, so I've gotten involved in some of that stuff. And there's not just the law aspect to it, there's the policy aspect to it. So there's the lawyers sort of interpreting the laws, but then there's the policymakers making the laws. Um, there's this great group called Hackers on the Hill. I'm going to live just outside DC, so it's really easy to get in there. Um, and there's this great group called Hackers on the Hill where we go help the, well, it started with, I think it was at DEF CON, maybe it was at B-Sides, I don't remember. But one of the congressmen actually gave a talk and he said, you guys all complain about the laws we make. But we don't know what we're doing. We need your help. We need the community to help us do so. So that sort of Hackers on the Hill got formed because of that. We go and form the, the staff and the, and the lawmakers how to do it. And they need our help in doing this. And, and so that's, I find that stuff, you know, fascinating. And it, by the way, it is way harder than it sounds. I, it's much easier to program than it is to write a law that won't have unintended consequences. They might want to start with uh, source code management. So they know who's who's making what changes. The, the number of times that I've heard like, oh, we passed this bill and then it has this in it. And we have no idea how that got in. Yeah, they don't use GitHub. They should. <laughs> yeah, they absolutely should. I mean, in fact, a public repository might be exactly what helps solve all of this. I don't know what I'm solving, but. I'm also quite involved in, in cybersecurity standards. And, and I'll claim one of my claims to fame is I'm always encouraging the groups to be using GitHub for the actual document creation for that very reason. So you can tell who made what change when with whose approval, which is like obvious in source code. It's not not as obvious in 
and document creation, but it actually is really important, particularly if you're writing something like a standard or a law. That's uh, fascinating. I, I, I hope it's okay to, to make a little bit of a, a move here because one of the things that you have been involved in recently is uh, serving time on standards boards yep. and helping to do some of those things. That, and just as an entry to that, like I, I would assume that those bodies do use more <laughs> source code control type of uh, document management systems, or am I, am I wrong about that? Well, they, they do now because I sort of push them to, or at least the ones I'm involved in, I push to do that. But actually, no, they mostly didn't. So it's been an evolution because all of a sudden on GitHub is, are not all that old a tool either. And, and things like standards, I got involved in standards fairly early in my career. Again, one of these serendipitous things of one of my coworkers was involved. I was involved in some speed processing pro, um, projects and uh, we were working on this thing called ADPCM. Well, first of all, to show how old I am, it was mostly a telephone network then. There was very little data. What data there was, was was called voice band data. It was modems over the voice lines. And the network was mostly analog. The, the switches were digital, but all the long haul transmissions were analog. And I was involved in the technology that helped it convert from analog to digital. Uh, literally, someone who worked for me had to, had to go before the FCC to prove we, it wasn't a boondoggle that we were putting a fiber optic link between North America and Europe. That it really was economically feasible to do it. Um, but one of the things that made it economically feasible was we, we redid the voice coding to basically take advantages of things like we actually packetize the voice so that like I'm speaking right now, you're not. That means a whole other direction is empty. You're wasting that wire, so to speak. Whether you do it with packets, you know, other people can slip in. Even though I talk a really lot, I do actually pause at times and you can actually, you know, not send the packet when I'm, I'm silent between syllables or, or whatever. Um, and we also did some uh, voice coding of a, uh, we changed this thing for, called PCM to ADPCM, Adaptive Differential Pulse Code Modulation. And for it to work, it used to be up until that point, you know, North America did its stuff the way it felt like it. And yeah, Canada and, and uh, the United States had degree on something. Europe did the way it felt like it. Yeah, France, Germany, and the UK had to agree on something. But we didn't all have to agree because we literally couldn't talk to each other because there was an ocean in between. Uh, satellites started coming around. We started putting fiber optic under the ocean. Um, we had to agree on, hey, how are we going to meet in the middle and, and how are we going to talk? And, and even with PCM, there are two different versions, the European version and the, the North American version. Um, and on ADPCM, we we're going to try and come up with one standard. And to do that, you do that in this thing uh, that's now called the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union. It's part of the U it's a UN agency. I actually still attend it 43 years later. Um, but I started attending basically because one of my coworkers didn't like going to Switzerland. I'm like, I get to go to Switzerland? Sure. I'd love to go do that. And I've literally been going there for 43 years. And so standards has always been something I've, it's never been my main job. It's always sort of been a hobby side job. You know, everybody's got to work a certain amount of hours a week to get their job done. And then if you feel like putting in extra effort, they'll always let you do something extra. Well, standards was always sort of my, my extra thing. Um, and I do think it makes a difference. I, I think it is really needed. And so lately, obviously, the later half of my career, it's all been in cybersecurity standards. But yes, I am very involved in, I'm, I'm actually on the um, Oasis Open is a standards development organization that I'm actually on the, the board of directors of it. Um, I chair one of the technical committees on this thing called OpenC2, Open Command and Control. Uh, it really frustrated me that when I was still working earlier in my career at AT&T, um, we put out these really big contracts for a really lot of cybersecurity gear. And if we picked vendor A and then a couple of years later, we picked vendor B, we'd literally have to rewrite all our software because stupid things like, you know, block IP address one, two, three, four, every single vendor had a different command to do it. I know so they'd get vendor lock in and you'd have to stay with them. And so OpenC2 is to try and make it so no, you you can switch vendors easily, which is of course way more important now because now we're, you know, everything's in the cloud. You can switch vendors as easy as you can't reach retard. So it's it, it's more needed now. And so I'm I'm very involved in that. Uh, and a lot of sticks, you know, sticks is a cybersecurity how to share threat information. The bad guys work together way better than the good guys work together. And so we 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 need to improve our de defenses. We need to automate more. Uh, people want to get into cybersecurity. Cybersecurity automation is a great, great booming area because we have to defend at machine speed. The attackers are attacking at machine speed. We got to defend at machine speed. So standards like sticks that allow, allow companies and, and also companies with the governments to you know share information about threats are all things I'm passionate about. You can tell just by my energy level picked up. Well, it sounds like you at first volunteered 
to be part of the standards community, let's just say. Yep. If if somebody's going to do that, is there like a vetting process that one has to go through to be able to participate and contribute in certain ways? I would guess yes, but I don't actually know. Like most questions, the answer is it depends. So back in the late 70s, early 80s, actually it was 1980 when I first started doing this, at AT AT&T, which was a big telephone company, the largest in the world at the time, uh, and ITU is a UN agency, so at the time it was called the CCITT, they changed names along the way, but still UN agency, big deal, means a really lot uh, to the company, then AT&T did have a process. In fact, I, I you'd have to sort of be the behind-the-scenes guy writing the contributions. I was writing the contributions for the guy who was going to Geneva before I got to be the guy going to Geneva. Um, but that was then. Nowadays, it's a lot easier, you know, to, first of all, have more virtual meetings, so you don't actually have to go to Geneva, as well as it's a more, in general, more open process. Now, if you're going to go, if you work for a big corporation and you're going to go representing that corporation, then I'm sure your corporation has, has some set of rules, but most likely they'll be begging you to do it because, you know, not enough people want to do it because it's, it's, again, it's, it's not usually anybody's actual job. It's usually a sideline. It's a hobby, but it's a really good one. Um, in my opinion, because it, it gets you interacting with other companies and other people in your field, much more diverse than the work group you're usually in. So you get different perspectives that I, that I think will help you not necessarily that week in your career will help you, you know, two or three years down in your career because you'll, well, one, you'll see things you didn't, you know, you'll just look at things differently than, than you'd looked at before. It's analogous to being an open source maintainer. Uh, open source is a form of standards, you you could argue. So again, similar, and that's again, a, a, again, people starting out, there's ways to help in open source projects, open source software development, open source cybersecurity, open source standards, all of them are easy to help and you don't have to be the expert. You don't have to be the making the, you know, ultimate policy decision that might be quote above your pay grade. It's things like, yeah, you need to test stuff and people need to actually read it to make sure it's readable and anybody can help with that stuff. And that's how you can sort of dip your toe in the water. And again, we talked before and sometimes say, yeah, and that's not for me. And don't, even if you find one that's not for you, doesn't mean the whole thing isn't for you. It means, well, maybe that group isn't for you or that particular project or that particular standard. Uh, It is easier to dip your toe in the water nowadays than it was back when I started. I think what's fascinating me about this entire conversation is this idea that you can pick a field which seems or from the outside to be fairly narrow. I think people think cybersecurity. Some people only think pen testing. Even I know that that's a fallacy, but you open, it's this like Pandora's box or or maybe even like a, a fractal where like you, you dive in and there's more and more. Like, yep. it's almost like the closer you look, the more you see. It's almost like that, yeah. I love the idea that you can get involved in a community. This is kind of a, a pattern that we've seen before. You know, so you're urging people if they're interested, you know, and think maybe this is a direction that they want to go in or even just investigate it because it's something they've they've heard of. You can go get involved in a community, go to some meetings, see what's being talked about. And it's not even just one community. You right. know, it could be there might be several different groups in any given metro area and, and maybe virtual groups for people who who don't live near a metro area. And that just seems like the the possibilities are endless there to create a career if this is something that one is actually really interested and passionate about. So two things on that. One is the passion I think is important. Find find what you're passionate about because again, if if it's fun to do, it's not work. Okay. And so that that you really want your sort of personal objective to be to always enjoy what you do. Now you can't always enjoy everything a hundred percent of the time. It's just that that isn't going to work. But if you're not enjoying what you do, you probably should be looking to do something else. And it might be because what you're doing is, you know, just a stage along the way and, you know, you serve your time or whatever, but you really should enjoy what you're doing. But the other thing, again, because the hacker, you know, first of all, movies matter. And, you know, so the sort of the hacker mentality is what you think. Again, hacker got misused. When I learned the word hacker, it was a good word. Cracker was the bad guy. Hacker was the good guy. It's just people who like to do it yourself, do like to play with stuff. I still call myself a hacker. I'm not a bad person. I, I do it because I like playing around with code. I, I like doing stuff. The perception is you're the pen tester. You're the guy that breaks in. Um, the perception is you got to know, you know, 19 programming languages and be a Windows 
registry expert and everything else to be involved in it. You, you don't. Okay. Yes, we need some of those people, but first of all, nobody can do everything. So, so we need lots of different people. There's more people involved in, in SOCs, security operations centers, the actual people reacting to everything. SOC, by the way, is one of my words that, that I actually built the first SOC and created the word SOC back when we were involved in a government project back a really long time ago. So I'm sort of proud of that one. There's threat hunters. There's there's people who are going after the bad guys. We mentioned before the legal and the policy. So there's, there's a lot more to it than people realize. Like I said, probably the majority of people in cybersecurity are actually in sales, either side of it, either the seller or the purchaser of the, of the stuff you need to do everything. And everything in between, like product management. Yep. So many possibilities there. I, th- I think that that's got to be one of the, the themes that we, we try to get out there is the world is a lot messier and careers don't tend to be made up of all the exemplar jobs that people think of, right? Right. Not everybody is a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or a plumber, electrician, or mechanic. The vast minority of people <laughs> are employed in, in one of these things, which is very standard. And and you even in the, the things like plumber, electrician, mechanic, the paths to them are not as clean as 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 you would think, right? If if you decided, hey, I want to be an electrician, like what is the path to that? Not clear. Not a hundred percent clear, you know, to, to everybody that's outside of the industry. Uh, sort of hitchhiking on that a little bit. The path to move up the corporate ladder isn't always as clear. So let's say you're involved in cybersecurity. You're you're doing whatever job it is you're doing. One of the things we didn't mention in all the different aspects of of cybersecurity is the business aspect. One of the things I said before is the thing you got to learn about is change. Um, the other thing you got to learn about is what is the business your organization's in and what value do you bring to it and do everything through that lens. Because all said and done, if it's a corporation, that's what's driving the seniors of the corporation. It's a government agency. That's what's driving the, the government agency. If, if you want to move up the corporate ladder, you have to think bigger picture than your narrow niche. Now, if you're very happy in your narrow niche and you want to keep doing what you're doing, then keep doing it. But if, if you want to look up, look at it from sort of up the food chains mentality and the, the fire up the food chain, you're, you're looking, the more you're looking at the big picture. I just, again, something I learned early on when you went to work at Bell Labs, you had to take this course called, uh, and you had to take it fairly soon after arriving at work uh, called Engineering and Operations in the Bell System. The, it's actually the book still in the bookcase right behind me there, um, sort of just to remind me of, of my roots. And it was very interesting because it, it talked about how the telephone company works and how and, and how it's run. A fact I learned in that course in, in the summer of 1978 that still sticks with me was at the time, AT&T had a million employees. Of the million employees, 400,000 of them were telephone operators. And the, the, the rule of thumb economically was if you could cut one nanosecond off the average operator connect time, it would save the company a dollar. Which means if you could cut a second off, it would it would save the company a billion dollars. That that sort of just as an engineer who worked with numbers, that that just sort of struck me as, hey, this stuff business actually has numbers in it, and it actually matters, and what I do actually matters to the numbers. And all said and done, that's what the shareholders care about, and that's what the you know CEO cares about, and stuff like that. So if you if you look at things from the bigger picture of of what is the organization trying to accomplish, it will help you move up the ladder, or at least it helped me move up the ladder. And I think it helped people that I mentored sort of have the unique, I don't think I have that unique a position is that sometimes some some of your mentors become your bosses. I've actually had people I mentored who then was later on my boss in my career, fairly senior. I was fairly senior. He was even more senior. So it's helpful to sort of look at it from that lens. Let me dig into that a little bit. There's a process of unlocking what you just said, which is, it, it seems to me it was that metric that kind of really helped you understand what it is that you're talking about or what the goals of the organization and, and how you can make small improvements that net out to big, big uh, functional, you know, or, or, or dollar savings. Is that something that needs to be articulated, do you think, to, to everybody coming into an organization to understand the processes that an organization is going through and how improving those processes can lead to big organizational, you know, improvements? I think so. I I'm going to be big into innovation and, you know, having new ideas and stuff like that. And, and being innovative has a aspect to it 
that, that sort of people don't realize from, from what you just said, because it's, you can't be innovative if you're not looking at the bigger picture. I mean, yes, you can be, but you can be small innovative to, to sort of tune the process you're doing. You can only be, you know, 10x innovative if you look at it from, hey, what are we really trying to do? So if you want to, you want some sort of disruptive 10x change as opposed to a 1% change, you really have to be understanding the big picture to do that. And, and I think too many people focus on, on their niche. I'm an introvert. I'm sitting here in my basement at a screen. I happen to be talking to two people, but I could, you two could not be here and I could be programming some genealogy stuff I'm doing and, and do it for days on end and, and be perfectly happy. So I get my energy from being by myself and sort of interacting with others, you know, takes energy away from it. My wife's an extrovert. She, she went nuts during COVID because it was just the two of us. She couldn't interact with other, other people. So I think many people in the fields I ended up in, partly because I am this way, are introverts. And so go out, you have to step out of your comfort zone at times to do some of these things. So things like going to meetups, it's not something I naturally did. I, I do because I recognize the long-term value to get over the short-term anxiety of walking into a room full of people that I, that I don't know. I recently went, I went back to my 50th uh, high school reunion I was really, really anxious. And these are people I went to high school with. So I obviously knew them. And they're obviously people, you know, some of them I hadn't seen for 50 years. I won't ever see again, so it doesn't really matter. But I was still super anxious about it. But I'm really glad I did it. So I sort of forced myself to do those things. And they pay off. We're, we're talking before on things like the meetups and stuff like that. You, you have to go out of your comfort zone a little bit. If you stay in your comfort zone, you're going to keep doing what you were doing. And I think that, comfort zone idea applies to learning about things that maybe on the surface aren't super interesting, but they become part of your overall repertoire or range of expertise. Yeah. And, and again, the, you don't find it interesting, but you at least learn a little bit about it because that help, helps you in your breath. But learning that you weren't thrilled with that thing went, all right, maybe that's not where I'm going to go. I'm going to you know, let other people go do that. And I'll go work on a different project that's in something I do find more interesting. Back when I was a system engineer and we, we did a lot of requirements work, I was, I was keen on there's requirements and there's not requirements. And they're both as important. We have to do this and we don't have to do that. It's just as important to write down that we don't have to do that to make sure people don't are, are calibrated. You're talking a little about about innovation, and I was wondering if I could ask a question about that. That I think sometimes innovation comes from people who have operational experience in unrelated fields. Agree. Maybe this is like I have a bias about this because I watched this BBC PBS documentary in the seventies called uh, Connections, and it was a you know history thesis that you know real innovation came not from like great inventors and the, the great man theory, but like this collisions of people who were doing this thing. And then they happened to run into people trying to solve a different problem and like uh, punch cards coming from the uh, industrial loom industry, right? Oh, and then the step to, well, maybe we can, you know, it's already storing information, these patterns, like maybe we can store census information and then, you know, do adding and then, well, storing information, you know, sets of instructions is just information. And so kind of that, you know, step by step, you know, collision from, you know, migrating from from one industry to another. Is that something that you think is still going on with like, highly specialized industries? Is, is Are we losing that? I would actually say, because the world is more interconnected now, and there is more opportunity to to sort of see the different perspectives, I, I would say there's more mashups than there used to be. I call that mashups when you take two disparate things and put them together and realize the, you know, Reese's peanut butter cups taste great because they're chocolate and, you know, peanut butter together. You wouldn't realize those mashed up together. That happens, I think, technologically a lot. But, you know, innovation also happens in 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 small ways. My, my, my first patent was two engineers were sitting in a room trying to solve a problem I was walking by and they said, Hey, Duncan, we got this issue. And they said, you know, here, here it is. And I said, Oh, you do this. And and I walked out and they said, you should patent that. I'm like, you asked a question. And I gave a one sentence answer and I should patent that. And I ended up actually getting a fairly fundamental patent from that. 
that the whole product line was based on. It can be as, as simple as you just had the right idea because you saw the problem a different way than they saw it and no one else had saw it that way before. You think, because I see it must be everybody else saw it that way. And that's actually not usually the case. Everybody's perspective is is unique. People can be more innovative, I think, than they realize they can be. And particularly if you're looking at it, like I said before, from the sort of big picture viewpoint, what, what is it you're trying to accomplish? And you bring your own set of experiences to it. And to your point, the broader your experiences are, the more you bring to it, the more likely I think you'll see one of those you know, connections that nobody saw before. When you were asking that question, John, what I was thinking about was maybe this actually plays into the introvert extrovert discussion that we had a minute ago. And if I'm really introverted and you put me in a new area, I might not actually be as willing to throw out a suggestion in that area because I don't have expertise. Yeah, I have the fresh eyes, but am I willing to take the chance and sound like a dummy if it doesn't pan out? I don't even think that's introvert extrovert. That's just change management. I, I would maintain no one likes change. And so you're, you're in an environment you're not comfortable in. You're less likely to speak out. But I do think you just, you, you got to speak up and, and, you know, I'll say there's no such thing as a dumb question. And so you can always word it as a question. The other thing, again, I'm fairly egotistical. So maybe this is just me, but I consider all meetings for me. If you wanted me at the meeting, you wanted me at the meeting. So therefore I should be contributing. If I don't understand what they're talking about, I should say, what are you talking about? I've had a fair amount of DEI training over my career, which was very eye-opening for me. So I appreciate that not everyone can come from the same uh, power position that I naturally have, but I would still encourage people to to speak up and to ask the questions. And, and again, you got to, you know, it's got to be context sensitive. You can't, you know, dominate the meeting and you got to look at what's the, well, again, what is the business purpose of, of the larger corporation and what are they trying to do and how do I fit into it? And, you know, if I waste all the my boss's time, you know, answering my questions, I could have got answered by answering, asking my peers or something. Um, that might not be the best career move in the long run. Maybe this is the right context to ask a question that, I mean, I hope you're not tired of, of hearing a question like this, but, you know, I, like a lot of people probably read The Idea Factory. You know, one of the things in that book was this idea that Bell Labs, like maybe one of the things that led to all the success that came out of it was, you know, maybe a coincidence, but maybe by design created a lot of collisions of people who worked on diverse things. They weren't all exactly uh, working on the same thing. And so you had people who are working on, you know, completely different projects who, again, maybe by design or by accident, were just bumping into each other, socializing it kind of exactly the way that you were talking about, hey, we're, we're having this problem, what do you think? And boom, something comes out of it. Was there any truth to that? <laughs> I think some, they, they did do a certain amount of, you know, rearrange the deck chairs every so often to literally force you out of your comfort zone and into other areas. Um, some, sometimes they took them, you know, the first or second level manager chain above the engineers and literally just, you know, switched them everywhere. Sometimes they, they moved groups around, I think partly to keep everybody from getting stuck in a rut. I do think part of the value of Bell Labs in the, in the days when I was there, I mean, I was with Bell Labs or its derivatives my entire career, but the industry changed a lot through my entire career because the, the system did get broke up by the Justice Department as a monopoly. But it was a regulated monopoly, and it was a regulated monopoly in an area where the technology was causing the cost to decrease continually. So we could basically afford, could reduce the phone rates every year and still have a certain amount of money that went into the rate base for just this to basically fund the idea factory. Um, and they've been doing it for a while and they sort of got the hang of it. It was a very egalitarian, I think that's the right word, thing. When I went to work there in 78, that was the year Arno Penzias and uh, Robert Wilson won the Nobel Prize in Physics. And like my second week at work, I was three behind the guy who won the Nobel Prize and was on the cover of Time magazine. And I was like three behind him in the lunch line. And he had the same title I had. Now, he probably had more digits in his salary than I had, but he had the same title. And I thought, you know, I thought that was really cool. And, and the fact I got to be there with him, the fact I got to be on a task force with Kernahan later in my career was was just, you know, a neat thing. Again, there were 25,000 people at Bell Labs. There were a few Brian Kernahans and a few Arno Penziances. But you get to run into them occasionally. And it was, you know, the rest of the 25,000 felt really cool for that. Later in my career, I, I was uh, actually ran the organization that, that we called the Ampersand in R&D. Uh, it was after 
couple of the split ups. So it was for ATT Labs as opposed to, you know, I was with Bell Telephone Laboratories, which then morphed into AT&T Bell Labs after we spun off the operating companies, which then split into Bell Labs and ATT Labs after we uh, split off the manufacturing arm. So I stayed with the labs the whole time, but ended up in the AT&T part. But when I was in that AT&T part, I was in, in this thing we called the Ampersand, which we still had a research organization. It was small relative to development, but it was still fairly large. And they had a lot of really good ideas, but they were researchers. They tended to, you know, make, I'll call them toys, that eventually became really good stuff that became product. But the developers, there, there was sort of a gap between research and development. So they literally made an organization. I got to head it up. Its job was to, hey, help the research guys make stuff that developers can actually like accept and start with as their base, um, which was a really cool job because I got to basically see across research all the different things going on uh, and which ones sort of we got a say in and which ones we thought would you know, have some commercial viability and needed to get brought over into the larger development arm. So things like text-to-speech and voice recognition and the early AI stuff, I, I got to be involved in some of that, even though I wasn't a researcher involved. A lot of network security stuff, um, I was because I'd just come out of the government and the intel and the uh, early days of the cybersecurity stuff. Um, I got involved in basically bringing a lot of that to the commercial side of AT&T through that ampersand job. So I do think they did a lot of things right in that area, but I think it's because they could afford to. And uh, nowadays, businesses are much more this quarter oriented. It's not a regulated monopoly anymore. So they don't sort of have the cash set aside to do that. Um, I think the world's, you know, suffering some for it. I think we could use use Bell Labs guy. I actually would like to interject and ask about the progression path to that leadership position you just spoke about, you know, being the ampersand between the R and the D, because... It was interesting to me what Duncan said about the lack of agreement on the right way to train people for a role in cybersecurity. Lots of pathways into it, and we need a balance of practical and theory. And that's probably true in just about any technology field. What's even more interesting is we've talked to four different people with some measure of cybersecurity experience now, and each of them has a slightly different story. One of the first discussions there was with Donovan Farrow in episodes 133 and 134. He now owns a security consulting firm. We spoke with Bill Kendall in episodes 180 through 182. He was actually a systems administrator who became a security engineer. And then most recently before the discussion with Duncan, we talked to Kenneth Ellington, who happens to be the owner of Ellington Cyber Academy and can certainly help anybody out there who's looking to break into the industry, check out episodes 239 and 240 for that one. Hopefully you realize through our discussions that were focused on cybersecurity that the field is much broader than many people realize. And it does include those tracks like law and policy. People need experience in cybersecurity that they can take to a a law field or policy development type field. And Duncan even mentioned cybersecurity automation based on some of these standards for threat intelligence sharing. That was an interesting one. So if you're an automation engineer today or have learned some scripting and programming, maybe that is an option for you. When Duncan spoke about standards, about some cybersecurity standards called STICS, S-T-I-X, and then he also talked about OpenC2 or Open Command and Control And if you go and look at the documents we'll put in the show notes at nerd-journey.com, you can see that OpenC2 is a standard that they're trying to develop that you can contribute to. There's a GitHub page with documents that one could go and make a contribution to as part of that community of people trying to create this standard. I think it's important to also highlight Duncan's mention that the work on these standards is oftentimes in addition to what your normal job is. So working on something like this might be a great way for you to get exposure to a new area that's really interesting, broaden your experience for preparing for the next role or even sharpening your skills in the role you're in. But even if all you did was 
contribute to improving the documentation for something like a standards group, and they're using GitHub, you actually would learn some things about GitHub and revision control systems or version control systems. So that's a relatable skill that you're using to dive into a new area. So you're building more than one skill at once while you're, while you're learning about these standards. Keep that in mind. Speaking of learning, oftentimes we learn about something and really don't like it. We get exposed to it. It's really about exposing ourselves to new ideas, new things that we could learn, new career paths that we could pursue. And we don't always know what the possibilities are as to where we could go from here or that this job function instead of required skills is actually a thing. And some of that information you can get from going to meetup groups focused in a specific area. Just like Duncan mentioned, you can get out of your comfort zone, go meet people, ask them about what made them interested in doing what they do and what what is the the set of tasks that they do most often in that role. Because we all need to remember, as Duncan stated, the world will change over time, over the course of our career. So you never know when you might run across something new that really piques your interest and changes your entire direction. Sometimes it can be really hard to focus on a bigger picture or seeing the bigger picture, the higher level goals at an organization, how they relate back to the work that you do. Hopefully you're working within some kind of division or functional group that can help you map those, much like Duncan saw the the operational metrics and understood how he could make an impact on those for his company. But many times, understanding the bigger picture can give you a better idea or a more innovative idea and ensure it lines up with what the greater goal of the company is. And maybe we don't always think about that. I really liked the description of Duncan being part of this ampersand organization. It sounded to me like he was doing DevOps, but I might call it ResDev because he was in between research and development. And being in that role, it was more holistic context about what the greater research organization did as well as the development organization. And that team was really to fill a gap and serve a need that the company had. So they recognized that there was this gap between the research and development organizations and thought that there needed to be some sort of liaison or go-between that could work with each one and, and help them work together better, improve those efficiencies, and affect those metrics that I'm sure someone was looking at to know they had an issue. And we did hear that Duncan got to lead that group. Next week, we'll hear a little bit more about his progression into leadership and how that came about. We'll see you then. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at BJourneyman. For Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios.